Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network for people who like books, people who like art, people who like cinema, people who like photography, people who like their culture. If you want to advertise to people like that, go to litbreaker.com and you can advertise on a bunch of great culture sites all at once, including sites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, Full Stop, The Believer, the list goes on. You can advertise on them all at once. You can advertise on them one by one. You can pick out the sites that you want. It's very user-friendly. It's very easy to do. Go to litbreaker.com for more information. This is an advertising network for culture Vultures, go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is conversational in nature. This was created using 21st century technology. How's it going out there? How are you today? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I appreciate you uh, listening. Lynn Enger is my guest today. He's the author of a new novel called The High Divide, which is available now from Algonquin. Uh, the High Divide is the official October selection of the TNB Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is uh, my online culture magazine slash literary community. It has its own book club. Most of you know that. Some of you don't. For those of you who do not know about TheNervousBreakdown.com or The Nervous Breakdown Book Club, uh, we pick a new title every month. And by we, I mean me and uh, Jonathan Evison, my colleague over at The Nervous Breakdown. We select titles, one a month, uh, and then they, they get delivered to your door. It's a great deal. It costs less than a book costs to sign up for this club. You get the new book every 30 days at your doorstep, and then I interview the authors on this program, and you can hear me talk to the author uh, at length. So if you want to find out more, go to thenervousbreakdown.com and click on uh, Book Club in the menu bar. Uh, you know, and speaking of, like, protocol-related uh, information, just to remind people, this show is available free uh, free of charge at iTunes and Stitcher, if you're a Stitcher person. Uh, and, and best of all, and uh, perhaps easiest of all, you can get the Other People app, the free official app of this program. It's free. It's available wherever apps are available. 
you get it onto your device. The most recent 50 episodes of this show will then be waiting for you. You can listen to them uh, right there. You can download them to listen to offline. And if you want to stream the full archives, you can sign up for premium right there within the other people app. It's, uh, it's very cheap. So if you want the app, go get the app. That would be, uh, that would be wonderful. I'm very caffeinated, so I don't think you can hear the uh, fatigue in my voice. It's been a bit of a crazy week. I'm working on a truncated schedule. I have family coming into town. And uh, compounding matters, I have not been sleeping well. So I've been working a lot, and uh, I've been running around trying to get stuff done, but I've also been waking up in the middle of the night unable to sleep, or my daughter has been waking me up. So it's just one of those weeks. Like Monday, I had to go to the doctor. I had to get a physical I had to wait in the waiting room. I had stuff to do. I was at the doctor. It was annoying. Then I went into the office finally, and the doctor came in. The doctor seemed annoyed. The doctor was in a hurry. The doctor didn't really seem like she was uh, paying attention to me or focusing on anything. You know what I'm saying? It was just kind of like, are you really, are you dialed in here? Are you, are you officially assessing my physical health, or are you uh, somewhere else? Because I would prefer if you were actually focused on the task at hand. I find this is the case a lot of times with doctors. I have uh, I have my thoughts on this. I'm a little leery of doctors. Not in the sense that like, oh, I'm scared of the doctor. But more like, are you really here? Or is this professional? Is this what's happening? There's a little bit of mistrust. I'm working on it. So there was that. And then uh, I had to go to the pharmacy. That was kind of an ordeal. Drugs are expensive. Pharmaceutical companies are making lots of money. That kind of thing gets me a little bit aggravated. And then I have family coming into town, my sister and her three girls, and we are uh, convening at Legoland. I don't know if you've ever heard of Legoland. I'm going to be there. It's going to be hot. It's hot out here still. It's almost the end of October. It's still almost 90 degrees outside. So I got to go to Legoland. I actually have to leave for Legoland right after I record this. Can you hear my enthusiasm? Can you hear how excited I am about Legoland? Uh, We are staying at the Legoland Hotel, which is uh, built by the Lego company, I believe. I don't think it's made of Legos, but I think there's a Lego theme in every room. There's lots of Legos. There's a bar in the hotel. (laughs) My wife made me watch a video. There's a bar in the hotel that has like Legos and I mean, lots of kids, lots of high pitched squealing. Lots of energy, lots of heat, lots of theme park in the heat, lots of togetherness, lots of family. You know the drill. So I got to make it through the week. It's one of those deals. I got to get through it. I'm going to get through it. I'm going to be strong. going to try to uh, give of myself for the children. And it will be over before I know it. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. 
He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest once again is Lynn Anger. His novel is called The High Divide. It's out there now from Algonquin Books. Uh, He was a joy to talk with. I'm very happy to have featured uh, his novel in the TNB Book Club and uh, to be giving it a bit of a push. And I hope you guys enjoy hearing from him. Here he is. This is Lynn Anger. And his novel, once again, is called The High Divide. I am uh, in Moorhead, Minnesota, which is on the far western border of, of the state. Um, we're right across the Red River of the North from Fargo, North Dakota. So even though Minnesota is a land of 10,000 lakes, where I am is the Red River Valley, which is a flat valley with the richest farmland maybe right up next to the Nile River Valley. It's all, you know, all flat farmland. Um, really not a very lovely place. Um, but that's, is, that's I, where I, I'm at. I, I was thinking that it was. I was like, as you were as you were talking about it, I was like, oh, my God, it's like pastoral and beautiful, but no. <laughs> not really. Uh, you know, it's it's pastoral, I suppose, but I wouldn't say beautiful. It's, it's rural. Uh, Fargo-Moorhead is about... The, the two cities and little suburbs are probably about 250,000, and, and it's a university town. I teach at Minnesota State University in Moorhead, and then across the river is North Dakota State University. There's a little Lutheran college in town and a couple of technical colleges. So there are a lot of college students in town, uh, which is makes it a pretty pleasant uh, pleasant environment, at yeah. least I think so. I love college students um, because I, I teach teach them. And, well, uh, uh, yeah. Well, I, f- I always feel like, yeah, living in a college town, it gives a, uh, a city a certain energy that it would otherwise not have, you know. Like, and plus, there's always the turnover, so it's like you get this new infusion of uh, youth and energy every year. You know, it doesn't run out. Exactly, um, and uh, yeah, it's a, a youth culture and um, a lot of culture too. With with the universities in town, there's there's music and and there's. Uh, Arts and there's athletics and there's actually quite a quite a writing community in, in Fargo Moorhead. I run into people every day who are working on their books, so it's it's not a bad place to live um, if you can just withstand the the brutality of the of the winters, which go on from uh, about November fifteenth to April fifteenth. I mean, if you can handle that, which um, I'm less able to do every year. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's it's okay, but we, my wife and I, try to get get, get to Southern California for a week in March um, every every year, and that's our salvation. In fact, next March we're going to be there all month. So uh, I'm looking 
uh, I just booked a condo for for the month of March in in uh, Palm Springs, so I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, it's not a bad place to live. My immediate surroundings are my uh, are it, it, well. I'm sitting in my uh, basement um, because I'm close to the to the landline plug-in, and um, it's an old house built in 1923, uh, which we've recently renovated. But the basement itself is unfinished, so. There are cement block walls and uh, it's storage, and I got a big refrigerator next to me in case I get thirsty. And um, <laughs> nice. it's you know it's just your old fashioned basement. Yeah. Uh, so that's where I'm sitting. Okay. So in, in, in terms um, of in, ter- in terms of like uh, you know living in uh, the the North Country, uh, you know, yeah. like and having those winters from a writerly perspective, it seems like maybe that would be a good time to just bear down and work. I mean, you know, because you have what else are you going to do? It's hard to get outside unless you're like cross country skiing or something. But I think you're right about that. Um, it isn't a bad it isn't a bad time to write. Um, in the middle of winter, um, there's there, like you say, there's not a whole lot to do. Um, you don't spend a lot of time outside unless you're, you know, you're pushing snow around. Um, and it's uh, it is it is uh, a time to kind of uh, burrow in and and get the work done. Which is what I tend to do in the winter time. Uh, of course, I'm usually teaching full time and writing, um, but in the winter I I get I get work done, um, and uh, I I don't tend to be somebody who is in, who needs inspiration to work. So uh, I work with my face looking at a wall rather than out a window. Um, <laughs> and 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 if I were living uh, in L.A. with you, I. I think I'd just be out on Venice Beach all the time. I don't know that I'd ever get anything done. Yeah, well, you so, know, yeah, you, I, it I does. It, it does sort of like mess with you because every time you look out the window, you're like, "God, it's beautiful." What am I doing in here? Like, I could be outside enjoying myself and you know hiking or something. But um, it, you know, it's a, it's kind of the gra- the grass is always greener. I mean, it's a, you can get work. <laughs> I think I think if somebody's wired to get work done, they can get work done anywhere. Um, and you know, you have an interesting process too. You write standing up, correct? I do out of, out of necessity. It's not that I, I, I love to stand up. It's just that, that, um, uh, I'm, I, I, for whatever reason, my lower back is, doesn't, doesn't like chairs. So if I sit for, for a long time, um, I tend to have trouble with my lower back. If I, if I stand, walk, if I'm moving, I don't have trouble with my lower back. So, so, you know, you can't write a book without spending a lot of time over a notebook, over over a laptop, over your computer, whatever it is you're writing on. And um, so what my, the way I've solved that problem is simply to uh, stand while I write. So for most of the book I just finished, I stood at a four-drawer uh, file cabinet, and that was my desk, and it was in a closet because that's where the cabinet stood. And I just stood in that closet for, well, days, <laughs> months. Uh, and I got the book done. Um, but, but this, of course, I, I don't write all day usually. This was, was over the course of, of, of years. And you, and, you, um, and you ever heard of like the, the conveyor, or not conveyor belt, uh, the treadmill desks? Have you heard of this? The For people who want to stand up and work and, and be walking while they work? You know, uh, I have heard of that, and um, I've spent enough time on treadmills and on elliptical machines to know that I wouldn't be able to do that. Um, because when I'm on a treadmill or, or any kind of a machine meant for exercise, 
for whatever reason, it must be my lack of ability to compartmentalize. All I can think about is I'm exercising. This is work. <laughs> and right. so I don't, think, I don't think I could have a creative idea or generate an interesting metaphor or even put much of a sentence together if I were walking or exercising and generating some, you know, sweat. I wouldn't be able to do it. Um, I know people who do it. In fact, I know people who, who read books that way, too. But not for me. I mean, when I'm exercising, I'm exercising, and that's where my brain is at. And so it's just a, a flaw in the way my brain works. I couldn't do that. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the the treadmill desks, like the the pace, I mean, obviously you can set it at different levels, but it's got to be really slow. If you're going to actually be focusing on, you know, writing something of uh, substance, I couldn't be moving at a, you know, I couldn't have like my heart rate up you know, trying to do that. Oh, I couldn't either. Yeah. I, I could not do it. Uh, I don't, I don't plan on trying. Uh, recently, um, I, uh, I, I, I got a, from a, it's a library cast off, um, our, the university library where I teach, um, it just, just went through a big renovation and, and they were giving some furniture away. And I ended up with a, one of those library desks that, that you put a dictionary on and they're, they, they're standing height. Sure. Um, so I now have that and that's my new desk. And so as I write and do any kind of, any kind of work with my, my laptop, which sits there usually, um, that's, that's what I use. It's really, it's really nice. And I have a little stool there in case I want to rest my feet, but, um, mostly I just stand there. And, 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 and you write by, and you write by hand first draft, right? I, I always do with the first draft, yeah. Um, the first draft, I, I have a hard time, I feel like I have a hard time um, accessing my my uh, fictional voice, um, fictional voices that I put on when I write fiction um, with a with, uh, keyboard. I just have a hard time with that. I might write letters with a keyboard, or I could write nonfiction or... If I'm writing uh, reviews or academic papers, that's fine with the keyboard. Um, so I don't have trouble composing that way. But when I'm writing fiction, I always use a, a pencil and and paper, a notebook, usually a spiral-bound notebook. And um, that way, for one thing, it's completely portable. So I can write in bed. I can write standing up. I can write at the coffee shop. I can write when I'm traveling. I can write anywhere all the time. And so it's nice to, to have that that portability. Um, but more than that, it's just, it's just, I think it probably, um, goes back to, uh, when I was young, the, the very, very beginning of my, any kind of writing I did, you know, when I'm, I identify myself, uh, with, with the way I form letters on the page. Um, you know, the study of graphology is pretty interesting. It's probably diminished in importance now, but, um, there was a time when uh, em- employers and corporations used to hire graphologists because supposedly a graphologist could look at a person's handwriting sample and tell you lots of things about that about that person's personality based on the cursive handwriting sample. Sure, yeah. Um, I think there's a lot to that. I, I, ha- I think it's probably quite quite accurate that one can tell a lot from handwriting. So, so what, so what me, is your, what does your handwriting say about you? <laughs> well, I, I can't, I don't know. I don't know what it says. All I know is that when I'm, when I'm writing a story and, and trying to, to, uh, uh, trying to, uh, imagine my way through a world of my own invention, um, and, 
and trying to get inside the minds uh, of the people who I've created, it works so much better for me when I'm when I'm writing by hand. And the words tend to spill out, whereas if I'm at a keyboard, it just doesn't seem to happen. Do you, do you edit yourself? Because I think maybe, you know, I can sort of get that. There's something tactile about holding the pencil and having the paper yeah. there. And there's something also, um, there's something maybe more playful about it. Because you, you mentioned childhood. You know, when you're a kid and you pick up a pen to write a story, there's less self-editing. There's less self-criticism, typically. Yeah. And you have, yeah. you have that freedom. So when you're writing these drafts uh, early on by hand in pencil... Is there a lot of erasing, or are you just going? Zero erasing, zero crossing out. I don't allow that. I, I just write it. And um, you see, if I were at a keyboard, that's a really good point you make, because if I were at a keyboard, I would be stopping, and I'd be editing, and I'd be cutting and pasting, and I'd be doing all the things I do at a keyboard, because that's what a person does with a keyboard, because it allows you to. When I'm writing with a pencil, I I just write. I don't stop. I don't cross out. If I... If, if what I've written is, uh, if I don't like what I've written, I'll, I'll just continue on and and try another sentence to, in which I say the same thing in different words. So when you end up, what I end up with is a draft that's that's quite um, quite raw and, and rough and um, needs a lot of cutting um, and, and of course needs a lot of development too in places. But but it isn't something that someone else could look at and make. I think they could make sense of it, but they would certainly recognize that what it is, which sure. is a tremendously raw sketch uh, or attempt at at uh, following um, a story, you know, creating a, a narrative trajectory. So, okay, um, so when you when you go to transcribe, you know, once you've got your first draft in pencil, and then you go to your keyboard to get it onto your computer, do you fix? Or do, like, do you fix as you're transcribing, or do you, do you type out all of the mess, get the entire document transcribed, and then start to edit? Yeah, that is really uh, probably one of the real flaws of this process, because what I tend to do is just type it out. And um, I'm not saying I don't fix anything, <clears throat> anything but I generally don't fix much. I, I tend to just type it out. In fact, this last time I did it, with this book, <clears throat> I was really tempted to to buy some um, some uh, voice recognition software and just just speak it and in, in you know speak it into my laptop. Um, I did not do that. I'm not sure why, um, but I think the next time around I'm going to do that just to save a little bit of time and, and effort uh, because for whatever reason I have a hard time. Uh, I have a hard time revising uh, when I'm when I'm going from handwriting to the laptop. In fact, when I revise, 95, 99% of my revision happens again with pencil, but it's it's working over a typed, uh, printed out, word processed draft. Ah, so, okay, yeah, that's an interesting point. See, this is this is interesting yeah. to me. I know this is like like you know we're kind of nerding out here, but this sort of minutiae. No, it's real interesting to me too. Yeah, because you you know what it does is it enforces a certain discipline, and you know at, at every level, like a you don't allow yourself to edit too much in the first draft, so you don't get caught up in all of that self criticism, and then when you do the transcription. You don't start editing then either, and then you, when you do actually get down to the editing, you're working on a hard copy, so you can't sit there yeah. and kind of compulsively noodle with the thing and possibly wreck it, which I think happens a lot. No. You know, 
I think the quality. Yeah, I think, you know, I don't do that. Yeah. Okay. Well, that that yeah, that seems yeah. wise. <laughs> well, it works for me. You know, yeah. I mean, I, and I'm sure that yeah, you know, everybody's different, but but it works for it works for me that way. I, one of the other reason that I I do it this way is is that I've found that when I try to edit uh, on the screen, um, there's so much I miss, and and ultimately when I'm you know you get into the third draft, say, and and you start you start doing it all out loud. I, I read it out loud so that I can hear out sounds. And and if I've tried to edit on the, on the screen, <clears throat> the rhythms are all off. And I can't read it out loud and feel feel good about what I hear. I have to I have to have the uh, hard copy and work it over with a pencil and um, do all my little changes with a pencil. And then of course you know type them in. But um, yeah, I, I need that uh, that discipline. Um, and if I don't, I usually find that um, trying to cut corners, save time, only ends up costing me more time in the long run because I have to go back and do it, do it the right way or my right way. Yeah. So yeah, that that's the that's the way I do it. And and of course, you go through a manuscript again and again and again, and finally, finally, you 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 start to hear it when you're saying it out loud, reading it off the page. You start to hear that the rhythms are are what you need. And uh, it sounds good coming off your tongue. It doesn't sound good coming off your tongue. It's nothing. And, yeah. You know, uh, uh, Flaubert, the French novelist, um, used to, legend has it, he used to, when he was writing, would go out and yell or shout his his uh, new pages into the into the air, you know, behind his home. Right. And, and it's like, I totally get that. I completely get that. Because unless you can feel really comfortable and happy with how something sounds when you're uttering it with your tongue you don't have anything well yeah and, I, I think um, that's what that's wise too because i feel like there's something about the energy of clear spoken language that i'm always trying to get into my writing uh, you know there's a pa- yeah, there's a power yeah. there's a power to it so if, if you're if you're not hearing it i think you might be missing something i mean i i, I don't understand yeah. how people can could possibly write something and not read it out loud. I'm sure there are people who can do that, but to me it seems essential. Well, you know, I think mo- maybe most people don't do that. I, I, I always ask my students this question, and, and other writers too, but especially my students. I say, do you, do you read out loud to yourself, you know, before you, uh, before you say this draft is done? And very few do. A lot of people say, well, I do it in my head out loud. And and for me that doesn't work. I mean, I miss things unless I actually do it. I have to do it out loud. Um, yeah, good writing should I think we're talking about fiction. Good fiction writing, I think, should sound like it's something that somebody, whether it's you or or the character through whose consciousness the the story is being told at that moment, um, had had spoken it. I mean, it, it should sound I think like spoken language. That's not to say that we speak. Um, in in you know beautiful syntax, uh, always choosing the right word. Of course not. So it's idealized spoken language, but nonetheless, it's spoken language. And it has that energy and, and that um, rhythm. It has that like energy and yeah, rhythm. Yeah, and, yeah. I, I, exactly. I, I completely get that. And then uh, yeah. another another aspect of your creative process that I want to ask you about is that um, with Undiscovered Country, uh, the previous book, and now the new one, The High Divide. Um, you know, comparisons are, are made to uh, for Undiscovered Country, Hamlet as kind of source material or inspiration, and then Homer's The Odyssey for The High Divide. How explicit is that? 
you know, are you starting with that as like kind of like the foundation and then extrapolating or is that more incidental? Yeah, very different for the two books. Uh, in the case of, of uh, Undiscovered Country, um, I was uh, mining uh, the Hamlet, um, you know, the Hamlet story. Uh, I, I wanted to create, um, I wanted to put into play the basic premise of the Hamlet story, but I wanted to do it in in a uh, place and time that was familiar to me and see how things went. And so it was a re imagination of Hamlet, um, at least insofar as the first, say, setup goes, up up to page 100 or so. And then after that, it was like, okay, let the chips fall. I didn't make, I didn't make an attempt to channel Hamlet beyond the initial setup of the story, but I did definitely channel it. Um, with, uh, with the last one, The High Divide, I made absolutely no attempt, as I wrote the first draft, second, third, fourth, to even I wasn't even thinking about the Odyssey. The, the, only, the only thing I was aware of is that I had chosen a name, Ulysses. Right. Um, and, and, you know, and so I was aware of the fact that people would think Odyssey, but I didn't even choose Ulysses thinking of Ulysses. I, I was thinking, what's a good name for a, for a guy who fought in the Civil War and, and, and whose story is, is uh, spinning spinning out here in 1886, you know, 21 years later. Um, and I thought, well, Ulysses. I was thinking Ulysses S. Grant. Sure. Now, once the story was was well underway, I was certainly aware of the fact that people might make some comparisons. I knew that would happen. But I wasn't doing it. I wasn't trying to make it happen. Once the story was done and people started to read it, um, I was not surprised that, that those connections would be made. But they weren't consciously um, uh, they weren't consciously put into play by me um, but on the other hand you know that's a story that's probably in our just in our path all of us we, we know that story so it's kind of hard to say well no it had no effect on me well I suppose it did well and I, but think, I wasn't consciously well and I think too like you know for people who might be out there struggling trying to conceive of a story to tell or trying to get uh, the particulars of plot nailed down, there, there's something very yeah. like practical about taking a classic myth, like or just looking, turning to classic yeah. mythology, and using that as foundation. You know, that seems like a very oh yeah, um, it's fantastic. W- yeah, I mean, you know, why not? Why? I mean, you can't every you can't really. What's the old uh, adage? You know, every story has been told. They're just new variations on the same theme. But you yeah. might as you might yeah. as well go to one that stood the test of time and at least use it uh, as a model. You know. <laughs> I agree totally. I tell I tell my students that all the time. I mean, if you're having trouble with with uh, invention in terms of plot or story, um, just you know, pick a pick a story you love from from uh, uh, from mythology or from from uh, classic novels or, or tales, and and see if you can retell it. You know, change the change the setting completely. Change the the milieu. Um, uh, make it. You know, Put it, put it on, uh, on in space, but but uh, retell that story. So I, I tell my students the same thing. It's it's really hard to avoid not retelling the same old stories because, like you say, you can only. What did John Gardner say? He said, "There's only two stories. Uh, uh, a man goes on a journey. Uh, it's the first one. The second one is a stranger comes to town. And you know, I guess that's as good a uh, a definition of of the." Uh, possibilities as any 
Well, yeah, um, I mean, you're in the high divide is certainly a man goes on a journey. I mean, you know, like, yeah, it, yeah, it fits the mold. Right. It fits that's the mold. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, no, I get kind of a kick out of the fact that um, people, you know, made a lot of bones out of the odyssey here because I, I wasn't really, I wasn't even aware of it. Um, but then I was aware of it because by the time you revise something many times, then you can't help but be aware of, of those, those, uh, uh, various elements that have bubbled to the surface, um, even if you haven't consciously made it happen. Yeah. Well, no, it's funny. It's funny how people will perceive a book, whether they're reviewing the book or they're just readers or they're Amazon reviewers or whatever it is. But mm-hmm. uh, it calls mm-hmm. to mind. I remember like David Foster Wallace in an interview talking about uh, the broom of the system, like his first novel, yeah. and how everyone was like, "This is Pynchon. This is Pynchon," and he's like. I hadn't right. even I hadn't even read Pynchon at that point. You know? like, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, and, but you well, know, you know, I really, I, I think, I think that um, who was it? Uh, who was the uh, what's his name? Uh, I can't think of his name. Who wrote the? the oh, I'm just gapping out. Joseph um, Conrad. Mm. Hero with a Thousand Faces, who wrote that book. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. And now I'm blanking, too. It's contagious. <laughs> yeah, and he, he, Joseph something. But anyway, he, you know, I mean, I, he, he did a lot of, he did a lot of uh, research into mythology around the world. And, and he found all these, all these similarities. And, and I, I kind of think it, well, Jung talked about it, too. Um, and I think that we do share this kind of collect, he, he called it, Jung called it the collective unconscious, and and I'm no expert on Jung, and I won't go there. But but I do think that we we share these uh, um, we we share the these um, universal narratives, sure. and the deeper we penetrate into our own consciousness, the more we we find the universal. So I always tell my students, don't don't try to be universal. Try to tell the story that has forced you to dig deepest into your own consciousness. And that's where you'll find the universal. Yeah, I totally I believe that. I do too. I, I think the one of the quickest ways to get yourself into a state of creative paralysis is to start from the premise that you need to say something with universal appeal. Like as soon as you give yourself that yeah. task, you're just yeah. going to be like, Oh shit. You know, yeah. What do I say? <laughs> yeah. You're, you're lost. Yes. You are lost. Yes. Well, you know, you, what do you do then is you end up in platitude country, cliche country, um, in terms of narrative, it, it doesn't work. You can't do that. You yeah. can't set out to try to be universal. You try to be as much you as you can be. And, and then I think you will find what's universal. It's Joseph Campbell, by the way. It just came back. It just came back. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Joseph Campbell. Yeah. Hero with a thousand faces. So, okay. So I want to ask you about the, you know, the, the universal versus the personal, because I think, you know, you write uh, in the High Divide. I think it's uh, fair to classify it as historical fiction. Required a lot of research. Mm-hmm. Re- required a lot of invention. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that there are personal um, launching points, you know, for the story, and there are ways in which your own personal narrative and your your genealogy weave themselves in. But you know, th- this is not a, an example of a novel that, in a really um, explicit way works personally. You know, you are doing a lot of imaginative right. work here uh, in the way that, like, right. a, you know, someone writing a Bill Dung's Roman might not. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm interested to know, like, where you start with a book like this because it does require a lot of research, uh, and you you do have a certain responsibility to get the details right, and you have, um, you know, you have limited. Uh, material with which to work because 1886 you know you don't have a ton of youtube videos from 
um, to, right. go, to go mine. So how did that part of it go? Right. Well, um, I, I suppose the book first started with my um, fascination with a, with a historical event that I stumbled across <clears throat> for the first time in about 1995. And um, not not to you know go over uh, ground that I've covered many times already, but but the story that that launched me into this book was the story about William Hornaday, who was the the curator and taxidermist at um, at the Smithsonian in 1886, who needed good specimens, meaning good stuffed specimens of the American bison, which he did not have, <clears throat> and he also knew because he was a conservationist that the American bison was all but extinct in the North American continent. And so he set out on an expedition uh, funded by the War Department to hunt uh, and kill a bison so that he could then uh, ship their uh, bones and their hides back to Washington, D.C. and recreate this panorama for the Smithsonian, which did stand on display, panorama of the American bison, which stood on display until 1957. But... I was just fascinated with the idea of this Eastern uh, Museum curator uh, going out west in 1886 and shooting all but extinct animals. Yeah. I thought, wow, that's just such an incredible story. And so I knew I wanted to write that story, but the more I read about it, uh, the more I knew that I wasn't very interested in telling it from the perspective of, of Hornaday himself. For one thing, very little. He wrote a lot himself. But little was written about him personally. And um, what I did uh, learn about him as I read didn't make me want to inhabit his consciousness for 300 or 400 pages. What was it? What was it that, you, that made you not uh, want to? He, well, he was, he was very much, I mean, everything I read, he was, he was all about, uh, you know, conservationism. Um, and, and he did a lot of good work. He was a friend of Teddy Roosevelt's. But on the other hand, he was uh, completely without any concern or compassion for the American Indian, for instance. Yeah. Um, and I found his attitudes really just awful. I mean, I, well, the things he said about Indians were, were just so... Um, well, I suppose they were, you know, of his time. I'm not... So I can't judge the man, but... But it didn't make me like him yeah. or want to spend much time with him. So I thought, okay, he's, still the story is good. I'm going to use the story, but he's going to be a minor character rather than you know, a point-of-view character or, or a main character. Well, you know, it's, um, I want to stop you because it's interesting to think about people. You know, and you say you can't judge the guy because he was of his time. Uh, I was, right. you know, just like incidentally, you mentioned Teddy Roosevelt. I was watching the Ken yeah. Bur the Ken Burns documentary, The Roosevelts, and you know, Teddy. Oh, I want to see that. Yeah, I mean, Teddy Roosevelt is so impressive in a lot of ways, but there's all there are also many points during his sections of the uh, doc that I found myself thinking and like telling my wife, I was like, this guy's basically like a psychopath, you know, like right. he's an, right. he's like a madman. To kill, he just wants to kill animals and shoot people. You know, he just had he had a really cold yeah. cold blooded streak to say the least. Yeah. And I'm I'm, fasc I'm fascinated by you know, and in the context of Hornaday, the way in which human beings can be uh, so uh, there can be such a weird and uh, kind of bleak contrast between 
their affections and their lack thereof. Like you hear you have a guy who um, is into conservation but yet is willing to shoot a bunch of uh, you know nearly extinct animals. And you have a guy who has like real affection for the environment and for animals but yet uh, is just awful to human beings <laughs> or at least of a, exactly. of a certain stripe. It's like how do you em- embody all of that? How, do you ma- how does a person – you know- I know. I, I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, I, I suppose, you know, I suppose if we could step out of ourselves and shoot 150 years into the future and look back at our culture, that we'll, we'd be astounded by by some of the blind spots we have, too. I mean, I, right. I imagine, I don't know what they are. I'm not a, uh, I'm not I, a futurist. I will venture, and I'm not will, an ethicist. I'll venture a guess. I think one day that the, uh, I mean, just in, as, as one example of a massive blind spot is, uh, the, yeah. food, the food industry, food production, and the the way we treat animals yeah. will one day be looked upon as like the way that we look upon medieval times, how they like quartered people and you know like whatever. Yeah, uh, that kind of thing. No, I think. you're probably right. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. one thing. I mean, I'm sure there. Mm-hmm. Are, I'm I, sure I, there I are many more. Hornaday. Uh, I mean, just you know, this is kind of a side trail here, but Hornaday, and I think it was. Uh, I'm guessing this would have been in the early 1900s when there was. Uh, I'm not going to get this story right, but I'll get the gist of it right. I can't remember if, if he was working at this point at the National Zoo and no longer at the at the Smithsonian, I'm not sure, but but for a time he had on display a human being, I think it was a pygmy from Africa, and he had this human being in a cage and people were coming and looking at him. A, and, a, and a, wait, became, wait, a, a live human being? A live human being. Oh, my God. I'm not kidding you. Yeah. You know, this happened. It, it was very short-lived because he thought it was just, you know, wonderful. And and there was an outcry, public outcry. And so he he had to backtrack and he had to, you know, let the man out of the cage. But um, it's a tragic story. The man ended up taking his own life. Oh, my God. But uh, it, was, it was just a... Another example of the way Hornaday had was was just in his own way he was kind of despicable. Sure. On the other hand, he was very uh, much at the center of the political drive that saved the bison. So I mean, he did a lot of good work, um, but but he was a guy that I just didn't really want to spend that much time with. <laughs> I'm in close proximity, yeah. so I didn't. Yeah. So, okay, so you have Hornaday, and then you have the uh, the American Buffalo, a fascination with it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, talk a little bit about that. I mean, is this something that goes back to boyhood? Yeah, the, 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 bison, the bison interest is definitely something that I've had for a long time. And, and I'm sure it goes back to the, the, the fact that my <clears throat> great-grandfather, who came from Norway in uh, 1883, um, and homesteaded in southeastern North Dakota. He built a, a sod a hut and a sod barn And the first summer he was there, 1883. In the spring of 1884, a, uh, a buffalo um, wandered up to his stock tank uh, next to the sod barn and was taking a drink, and my great-grandfather shot that bison. Now, I don't know how aware my great-grandfather was as a new immigrant of of what the bison meant to that part of the world. I don't know if there were still a lot of bison bones, bleached bones 
out on the prairie that he was homesteading. He probably thought it, that's he, what he, happened. Who knows? He probably thought it was dangerous. He's like, "Got to kill this big." I don't. I don't know. I, I'd love to be able to talk to him, but but and maybe he thought meat. You know, maybe he just thought I need meat. In any case, he shot it, and um, so I had that story uh, told to me as a as a child, and and uh, I was always after that very interested in in bison and you know read about them and uh and of course as i got older i realized exactly what the what the destruction of the american bison herds meant to the plains indians tribes and so um you know i I realized that 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 family story uh was really a story just as much about the people that we supplanted on the prairie as anything else well that's okay I've, i've been yeah. Well, I want to ask you because uh, the generational guilt is something like yeah. I think we we uh, we can grapple with depending on what our personal family history is. But, you know, my family comes from the American South, um, you know, the the racial mm-hmm. stuff, you know, going back generations. That's something that really I feel, you know, like I feel guilt for things that my ancestors uh did and believed. And I'm wondering like do, is this the writing of uh, the high divide? Is this an attempt to grapple with that kind of thing? It definitely is. Um, and, and it's hard to find the right word to talk about because, you know, guilt, in my mind, guilt is, is a very personal, if not religious term. And and is it the right word to use? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But, well, but, yeah, but yeah, you didn't. Uh, you I didn't, think... You I think didn't. Well, I, I just want to say, because, like, you didn't do it, you know, like, I, I kind of, it's like, right. I'm not a racist. I don't, I didn't ever own slaves, right. but my ancestors might have. Like, what's my level of personal culpability here? Like, do I carry, like, am I being melodramatic by feeling it? <laughs> you know, like. Uh, yeah, it's it's just a, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to talk about. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't have an answer for you. I know that, uh, I know that there, that uh, there's a kind of collective regret that, that, um, it weighs on my shoulders, and um, I think that I have benefited from from the loss that uh, another people has experienced, and and I know that that even into into the present time, um, American Indians, Native Americans have been have been uh, ignored and often mistreated, and uh, I think ignored just completely. Ignored. I mean, how many people even uh, pay any attention to to the fact that they were, you know, herded onto these reservations in many cases, which were plots of land that nobody else wanted, and and expected them to grow their own food in this dusty soil that couldn't grow food. Um, they starved. Um, so yeah, I, I feel called guilt or regret, whatever I whatever the term, but. Yeah, I think this book certainly came out of that. Well, and it's funny too. You yep. hear you hear about like uh, the American education system and how we're always atrophying in the sciences and, and in math. And you know, I don't dispute that entirely. But there's a part of me that always feels like one of the, the most undertaught or mistaught subjects in our educational system is history. It's an ugly history in a lot of ways, and it doesn't get treated, I think, in a um, in a fair and factual way. It's, it's often very scrubbed. You know the way that we ta- tell our, tell ourselves our origin story, and the way that we're taught our origin story in schools. 
Oh yeah, at least when I got it, it was it was it was uh, very hygienically pre- uh, presented, and um, it seems to me, my and my kids have have I think had the same experience with with history. I think it's the novelists who are who are telling our history now, and uh, you know, a book like mine, I think I think it. You know, of course, I'm the person who wrote it. I, I think I'm telling the history as it ought to be told. That that little piece of it, um, and uh, I, I agree with you completely. I think that history is undertaught, and when it is taught, it's often poorly taught. Um, and yeah, do you do you teach your children the, the ugly stories that that uh, are unquestionably ours? Well, I think you ought to. Yeah, I do too. I do too. <laughs> I think you ought to. I mean, yeah. you got to grow up. We got. I mean, like, I think there's something really yeah. sort of infantile about believing that we need, you know, that we just can't handle it. And you talked about how Native Americans and the, and issues related to Native Americans are often ignored. I think it comes from uh, a sense of guilt and discomfort a lot of time. Like, you just it's too ugly to look yeah. at, and so people, it's too painful. Yeah. But that's not that's not yeah. an excuse. You know, you have to reckon with it it's somehow, not. and so. Uh, it's good yeah. that books like yours exist, you know, that people, like you say, if fiction yeah. writers are the ones who have to bear up the responsibility, then, um, you know, at least that someone's trying, you know, to, to get these stories told yeah. and to reckon with it in a, in a way of uh, that involves like depth and substance. So yeah. um, you also you also talk about, uh, it, you know, as far as the the creative origins of this book, you know, there's the bison, there's your uh, family history, you know, your great grandfather shooting the bison. And then there's also. Um, you know, the impulse to want to write a novel about children going in search of a missing father. So where does that come from? I don't know that I can tell you. I, I really don't know. Um, uh, I, I, the ideas that I get for, for, for stories and books um, aren't ideas that I usually sit around trying to think up. I mean, they pursue me from behind. And then I don't, I don't keep a notebook with, you know, a list of novel ideas, I, I end up writing books that I um, can't help but write. And and so this idea of children um, uh, needing to go in search of a, of a parent who's gone missing, that idea has been on my head for, in my head for some years. And, and maybe in, a, in 10 years or 15, you could ask me and I could tell you what it is in my own autobiography that that um, resulted in this in this obsession um, my own father who's just turned 90 uh, was a very good father never you know never <laughs> gave me any reason to to question uh, that he would always be uh, available to me so so it's not out have, of my own experience do you have, do you have kids I do, I do have two kids they're 20 uh, 25 and 23 and, and it could be just this uh, fear of, of, in some way, not being adequate as a parent, you know, maybe that's it. I, I suppose all parents have that fear. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I can't tell you where that came from, but I know that, I know that it was uh, a story that I wanted to tell. And when I originally thought of it as a novel idea, I thought it would be a contemporary novel. And, I, and I'd spent some time thinking, just before I started this book, I'd spent some time thinking about, okay, what... What would take this parent away, and why would this parent have wandered away? Um, because I was going to tell from the point of view of the kids searching him out, um, and I started, you know, coming up with some some ideas. I don't remember what those ideas were, but then at one point I thought, hey, I also love this buffalo story and Hornaday. Can I combine these two, make it a historical novel? And at at that point, 
it all just fell into place. Um, and I was able to come up with a, with a plot line uh, in very little time. Do you outline? But I, well, what I do is um, I, I do, I, I don't know if you call it an outline, I come up with a kind of general narrative uh, movement or arc, and, and, I, and I, I like to know what that ending is going to be before I start. But I don't know everything that's going to happen between beginning and end. I, I don't know what kinds of relationships will develop and, and what the histories of the characters are, but I know how it begins and I know how it ends. And then what? what and, and I try to... Yeah. Well, I was going to say, and then what about, like, with a historical novel, you're obviously doing a good bit of research. So, you know, I think the thing that plagues people who work in that particular vein a lot of times is, is knowing when to make the jump from, like, the research phase to the creative phase, because it can be easy to just, like, keep researching, <laughs> you know, like... Yeah, you... yeah, yeah. So how do you know? When did it's you def- make, when did you make the well, jump? I... Well, I, you know, um, I didn't spend, I mean, I did a lot of research. Um, but I didn't, I didn't really spend a, a lot of time researching before I started. I, I, uh, I tend to research as I write. Um, so I was, you know, I was doing a lot of reading. I read a lot of books, read a lot of articles. Um, I did a lot of Googling. Um, and, of course, some of these books uh, and articles I'd read before just because I was interested in these subjects anyway. Um, but you're right. Um, you can you can spend a lot of time researching, and and trying to convince yourself, no, I don't know enough yet to write this book. And there was there was that point for me where where I had to say, okay, I have to just write. I can't worry about the research anymore. I have to write it because I'm never going to know as much as I need to. Because of course we never do. I mean. If if uh, somebody from 1886 were able to reappear now, who would lived in those places at that time, um, read the book, they'd say, "Well, you got this wrong and that wrong and the other thing wrong," and maybe some historians will too. Uh, you you can't worry about that. You have to do the best you can. You have to create to the best of your ability a uh, a lifelike uh, world for the for the reader to enter. And, of course, that world is made up of all kinds of uh, details. Um, but you can't overburden the reader either. You don't want them to, to feel as they're reading as if you're delivering to them some kind of history lesson. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't want them to feel clobbered by the, by the research either. Right. So, yeah, there was a point where I just had to say, okay, enough. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write the draft. When I'm done with the draft, then as I revise again and again, I'll, I'll be checking I'll be doing, continuing my research and, and checking on my facts and trying to get it all right. Um, so yeah, I I, I didn't um, I didn't put off the writing too long. Um, I came to that that agreement with myself fairly early on. <clears throat> you seem like a very practical, like pragmatic, like even keeled writer. You know, you don't seem like somebody who gets too emotional about it. You know, um, I I don't really, and I think. I, well, I do and I don't. I think what's hard for me is going back and forth between my life and the world I go into when I'm writing the novel, those, those two realities. And I have a easier time going into the novel than I have coming out of it. What's hard is actually to, 
to come out of the book and then deal with the realities of of life, teaching, you know, family, yeah. mowing the lawn, all that stuff. That that is hard for me. Um, so uh, I probably I think I am pretty pragmatic in that I don't tend to have writer's block. I, I can move into those worlds I'm I'm making up and live pretty happily. Um, if if I have a problem, it's it's uh, coming back out and and trying to be a a reasonably um, decent uh, human being in my in my real life. I think you're, that's the hardest part. You're like, hey, when I'm in my closet standing up over this file, you know filing cabinet, you got it figured out. <laughs> you know, it's the, it's, it's the rest it's, of it's, life. It's, I guess it's where I want to be. Right? Yeah, right. It's where I want to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> terrible. It's terrible. No, but yeah. you know, I get it. And so, um, you know, your book deals with uh, you know 19th century America. It's a time that I can romanticize really easily in my head. It's like you know, obviously there was a lot of dark stuff going on, but it, from an uh, ecological standpoint, uh, you know, plenty was spoiled and was in the process of being spoiled, but yeah. not nearly as much as we uh, seem to be dealing with today. And then you see uh, movies or you read books about the old frontier in a time when uh, the land was the, the west of uh, the western part of the country was pretty wide open. Um, you know, it, it can be easy to think, oh, God, that would have been amazing. It, when you go through the process of researching and writing a book, uh, that takes place uh, on the American frontier up in the North Country. Uh, do you uh, lose any kind of romantic notion of what it was like back then, or do you still have a little bit of it? Because I know it was hard living. It was hard living. Um, no question about that. Um, do I romanticize it? I think I probably do. Um, uh, but not the people. I mean, I, I think the people... Uh, it's, I don't think it's ever accurate to romanticize people or an era, <laughs> right? Um, but but I think but I think what I romanticize is the is the uh, is the uh, uh, the wilderness, the landscape, the, the untouched beauty. It wasn't untouched, of course, and that's what I'm writing about. But compared to now, it was it was untouched, um, and I think that's what I romanticize, and I think that's often what what people writers of the West. Romanticize. It's hard. It's hard, for instance, to write a novel about the West without um, getting caught up in, in rapturous uh, descriptions of, of, of nature and the sky and weather. I can't help it. I mean, to me, uh, I can't tell you the number of times I think, oh, if only I could could step back 100, 150 years and see what this looked like then. Right. I think that way all the time. So being able to live for a time in my imagination in in the places I write about, you know, in 1886, that was a, just such a kind of a self-indulgent pleasure for me. Well, sure. So, yeah, obviously, I, it's a I was romanticizing. Well, and then just like the, the, you know, even if there's places that you haven't been in the, in the you know, in today's age, there's a million pictures. You have some sort of frame of reference. Yeah. You, you've seen it on TV. Like back then, you're on horseback, you know, out in the prairie or, or heading towards the uh, Continental Divide. You must have felt like you were on another planet, depending on where you came from. Oh. And the distances traveled and like, you know, uh, Lewis and Clark, like that kind of adventuring just isn't really possible anymore. It doesn't seem like. No, I, I don't think it is. And um, uh, or at least it. No, I don't think it is. Uh, and and when, um, but it's the beauty of reading and writing. It's why we read and why we write. Is the 
is it gives us the opportunities to experience those things that we're never going to experience in our lives because we're, we're stuck with these single, single one, one life and we can only do so much and go to so many places. Um, and if there's, I've never been a, in, into science fiction, but if there's one uh, idea in science fiction that I've always been drawn to, it's, uh, it's time travel. And I think that uh, when, when I write, or at least when I wrote this book, um, that's essentially what I'm doing. Um, and it, it was, I probably did this for mostly for self-serving reasons. I just wanted to spend some time uh, in these places in that time. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, there's worse things you could do. <laughs> right? A lot of worse things. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you could be out there shooting buffalo for like for real. You know? <laughs> yeah, I met a guy in Denver on book tour who uh, was a good friend, good friends with a, a rancher, and um, part of what he did for this rancher was har- was work with the harvest in the fall, harvesting the bison. So he was. In his youth, um, he shot quite a few bison with a 50 caliber sharps, which was the buffalo gun in the in the late uh, 19th century. And so it was so interesting to talk to this guy who had actually shot bison with a historic, or historically accurate gun, you know, the 50 caliber sharps. Why? Why did um, he? Wait, wait, but why did he use that gun? Like, why not get like a more? Well, I, it's it's a perfect gun. I mean, you could. It was. It had. Uh, it's a very very heavy gun. Um, so that you can shoot it many times without getting a lot of um, uh, a, a lot of shoulder trouble. You know, right. it didn't have much kick because the gun was so heavy it absorbed the the recoil. Um, and and uh, you can, with an open sight, shoot an animal at you know a mile. And I don't think they've ever probably made a better gun for for that purpose. I don't think gun technology is really improved much uh, when it comes to accuracy. Um, maybe it's improved a lot in terms of, you know, like they make guns that shoot a whole lot of a whole lot of shots in, in a minute, you know, that kind of thing. But that's not what you're doing when you're hunting bison. You're not going to use an Uzi to hunt bison? You're not going to use an Uzi or an AK-47, probably. Uh, so <laughs> I, think, yeah. I think it's probably just the best gun for the job. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, because I, uh, I mean, I lived for a time in Colorado, and uh, I remember you, yeah. know, you do see some bison here and there. You know, they have, uh, and then there's also like bison meat, which is a thing in certain American West. You know, people do eat that stuff. So, um, mm-hmm. but I just, you know, I couldn't. I don't think I could take a, sh- a shotgun to a bison. I don't think I could do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, it would be it would be a real sobering thing to do. Um, Unless I was starving, I, I have, I mean. <laughs> then you would. Then yeah, and then bison, I have no problem. Bison meat is very good, um, and if it's if it's grass raised bison, it's it's tremendously healthy, very 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 low in fat, and very high in protein. Much healthier than eating, say, uh, uh, Angus beef or or really any any kind of pork or beef. <clears throat> So, it, like when you uh, when you look at where you are, like uh, you know, you went to the Iowa Writers Workshop. Uh, you grew up, you know, writing. Uh, I guess it sounded like when you mentioned it earlier, writing by hand. Uh, you know, you always had that impulse going back a long way. Like, uh, is this what you thought you would wind up doing, writing novels uh, of a historical bent, uh, or is this a surprise to you in any way? It's not a surprise. Um, I uh, I think if anything, the surprise is it's taken me so long to do it. Um, you know, 
uh, just the responsibilities of being uh, uh, an adult in our culture um, took me away from writing as a primary activity for many years. And um, I've always been writing, but it seems like it's taken me a long time to to get to the point where I'm publishing what I write. Uh, but yeah, this is what I what I wanted to do. Um, it's not so much that I just wanted to write historical novels. Um, I don't know that my, you know, in the future, most of what I write will be historical in nature. The book I'm writing right now is, is uh, set in the 70s. I guess that's, is that historical? I'm not quite sure. It's getting there. But um, <laughs> it's getting close. It's getting close. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, this is what I wanted to do. I, I, uh, I love I love writing. I really do. It's it's. I know there are writers who say they love to have written. Um, I mean, there's no satisfaction that competes with writing well, and I agree with that. But but I love the process itself. Um, I enjoy it tremendously, and so this is what I what I really had hoped to do is is write novels. Well, well, you're doing it. And then, have you ever been back to Norway? Like, uh, just uh, out of curiosity, have you ever gone back and seen the land from which you hail? I love Norway. I've been there twice. I'm going again next summer, and I've I've been to the the old Inger place, and um, I've been really in almost every part of Norway, the far north, and of course the cities and the beautiful western coast. And I, I love that country, and um, and I hope to go there many more times. Do you, do you have family yeah, back the other, there? Yeah. You know, um, not not family that I'm in contact with. No. Uh, I did, the first time I was there, I did meet um, a very elderly, uh, gosh, well, how is she related to me? I can't really tell you how she was related, but she was an elderly relative, and she has passed away since then. But um, I suppose I could, you know, I could I could pursue that. I haven't done that. Yeah. But I do, you, do like that country. Do, do you, you feel a sense of... Uh... I guess you naturally do. I, you know, uh, do you feel like a sense when you're back there of connection? I guess you would. Um, oh, I certainly do. I feel comfortable there. I could live there happily. Um, when I was there, and I, I don't speak Norwegian, but people would come up to me and ask me, direct, you know, Americans would come up and ask me directions um, as if I was a, a native Norwegian. I think I just fit in there. And so I felt I felt like I could stay. Yeah. Um, well, Minnesota... And I haven't felt like I've, Minnesota and Wisconsin, like that part of the country, the Dakotas, there's a lot of uh, Scandinavian immigrants. I mean, that's, <laughs> I, yeah. So, I mean, I, I grew up around those people. I grew up in Milwaukee, so I remember there was lots of Germanic and there oh. lots of Scandinavians. And uh, my wife is from Minneapolis, so I know the uh, sure. I know that neck of the woods. <laughs> it's a it's good people, yeah. you know. It is, it is. I think it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. L.A. I mean. Gosh, aren't half the people in L.A. Minnesotans fleeing the weather? Palm, Palm Springs in the winter—that's a big thing. My oh. my in-laws, <laughs> all, my in-laws are always planning their month uh, in California, Southern California, for the winter because it's just—it's uh, too brutal, especially as you get you know get older or whatever. They're, they've had enough of it, but um, you know, it's it's it, there's goods and bads. You know, the weather's always nice out here, but it's there's something to be said about the people in the culture up there i go over it and over it in my head this is an ongoing thing with me but uh it's certainly well, if it were up to my wife if it were up to my wife we would we would be there and yeah. and we probably will we probably will be all right um yeah, we, we love california 
Well, well, maybe we'll cross paths at some point then, you know. But uh, it's been. Uh, such, I hope we do. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. It's been a great uh, pleasure as well to feature the High Divide in the TMB Book Club. I'm glad we got a chance to shine a light on it, and uh, I just congratulate you on its publication and wish you well with whatever's next. Thanks so much, Brad. It's just been a delight visiting with you. Okay, folks, there it is. That's it. That is the program. That is Lynn Enger. His novel is called The High Divide. It's out there now from Algonquin Books, one of our nation's finest publishers. You can find Lynn online. His website is lynn-enger.com. He's also uh, available to you on the Twitter, where his handle is at Lynn John Enger, L-I-N-J-O-N-E-N-G-E-R, at Lynn John Enger. Go get his book, The High Divide. Pick up a copy. Carry it around with you in public. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. As always, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, hey, the TNB Book Club, what a great idea that is. Go sign up for it over at thenervousbreakdown.com. Just click on Book Club in the menu bar. It's $9.99 a month. That's less than a paperback, folks. You get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. It's a great way to support uh, this program. It's a great way to support TNB. It's a great way to support literary culture in general. The authors involved, the publishers involved. It's a good deal. So go do that. And then you can listen to me talk to the authors uh, of book club titles on this program. And it's a really enriching, wholesome experience for everyone. Don't forget about the Other People app. Go get that. It's free, available wherever apps are available. Sign up for premium if you want to stream the full archives. Uh, If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. You can reach out to me that way. Or tweet at me, at OtherPPL. Or at Brad Listy. I'm out there. I'm online. I have a web presence. I'm building a platform. I'm going to Legoland. Oh, I'm going to Legoland. There's a, I mean, there really is a bar in the Legoland Hotel. Uh, should I get shit-faced in the Legoland Hotel bar? I might do that. I might cause a ruckus. I might make a scene. <laughs> I'm very tired, folks. But in a slap, it's it's manifesting right now as a slap happy. I'm sure by the time, you know, tomorrow rolls around, and I'm standing in the midday sun, my daughter is uh, sobbing, my nieces are—it's just four little girls sobbing. It's all girls, and me and my sister at the Legoland Hotel. I think that uh, by then, I might not be as slap happy. Or perhaps I'll be more slap happy. I could be suicidal. I could be anything. Please remember that Tobias Smollett died of tuberculosis and that Aeschylus never saw the Parthenon. That's it for now. Thanks again to Lynn Anger. Go get the high divide. Thanks to Algonquin Books. And uh, thank you to you guys for listening and for supporting this uh, show. With your ears. And your wallets. Pray for me this weekend. Think of me at Legoland, wherever you are. Are you in a cubicle? Are you on a train? Are you in your car? Are you jogging? Are you at rest? Are you enjoying yourself more than I am? Are you experiencing more good fortune than I am? Are you in a dark room? Are you suffering? Pray for me.